Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. It's uh, so great to have you joining with us this morning. Uh, For those of you who are new and just uh, checking us out, we're so glad you're with us today. Uh, We'd love to learn a little bit more about you, and we hope that you'll connect with us online through the various channels that are available there for you, because we would love for you to be able to join with us in community, particularly when everything opens up and we can once again meet together uh, in person, because Listen, it is so much better to shake a hand than to just wave at a screen, and I, know, I think you know what I mean. Uh, hey, we're, today we're, te- we're continuing our teaching series in the book of Romans, uh, and I hope you have a Bible handy, and I hope that you will turn with us to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and thanks, Kincaid, for uh, reading that scripture this morning. Uh, also, I want to let you know that we, we've put together extensive notes for you, and so you can look at those at thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes. Uh, I think it's really going to be helpful for you as you track with us today because uh, this series has a lot of content and uh, we really want to do a deep dive into the scripture and one of the best ways, one of the tools that we have available for you are those notes. Uh, Hey, let me ask you a question this morning. Do, Do you ever get this sense that the world we're living in needs help? Um, you know, I, I talked about this last week, but I'll just mention it again this week. I mean, the, the things that we saw with the Capitol Hill riots a couple of weeks ago, and now they're, they're doubling down on security in the States. And, and of course, this is supposed to be one of the most civilized, one of the most democratic nations in the world, and yet it's having one of these major crises that's involving a lot of different people. I mean, a lot of the problems that we have in our world are, are they're huge and they're, they're messy and, and they're tangled, like issues like uh, pollution and war and, and terrorism and, and human trafficking and racism. But a lot of our problems also hit a lot more closer to home. Things like workplace conflict and, and, and family struggles and, and addictions and, and et cetera. Now, did you ever notice that most of the problems that we face are actually people problems. Like aside from natural disasters, I think you could probably trace every major problem that we're facing on the planet back to a person or to a group of people. About, it, it, our problems are about human beings ultimately making bad decisions. And, and I know, you know, if you're like me, it's, uh, it's easy to get on social media or it's easy to talk about this with friends. And it's, it's so easy for me to just kind of point my finger at others. But sometimes I have to admit that I am a co-conspirator with the rest of the world in creating these problems. You know, it's like the old saying goes that whenever you point the finger at somebody else, you have to be careful because three times as many fingers are pointing right back at you. What's wrong with the world? Well, the short answer is, to be summarized in two words, I am. And so are you. And as a matter of fact, so is the rest of humanity. Now, it's interesting. People come up with different frameworks to come up with solutions to the world's problems. Let me give you some examples this morning. Some of you might say that the problem is a lack of knowledge in our world. So if we just educate more people, then they will become more civilized and perhaps more technologically advanced. Others might say that the problem 
is lawlessness. So, you know, if we just double down on crime, we get tougher on crime, and, and we enact, enact better legislation, then we will see more order and less corruption in our world. Yet there are other people who would say that the problem is with systems of power. So, I mean, if we just tear down these systemic power structures, then, then the right leadership will ultimately rise up and create a much better world for us. Then, of course, there are those who would say that the problem is with psychological well-being. So, so I mean, if we could just improve people's psychological self-worth and, and heal their emotional brokenness, then, then they'll become more relational, they'll become more productive, contributing members of society. And, and you know, the thing is that there is, there is some truth in each and every one of these problem-solution frameworks. But I think that we can see that each one of these solutions by themselves will not necessarily fix the problem because the problems of the world that we live in, the problems of people are far more complex and nuanced. And of course, most of these solutions, they, 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 they deal with the symptom of the problem, but they don't always necessarily get to the real root of the problem. Because here's the thing, at the end of the day, we still have corrupt judges. We have highly educated people building nuclear bombs. We have therapists sleeping with their patients and rioters burning down buildings. All of these solutions do not necessarily solve the root problem. Now, the Apostle Paul would argue that the problem with humanity runs far deeper than these symptoms. And that before you jump to solutions, it's important that we first identify the problem, which brings us to today's text. But before we dive in, uh, we need to do a quick recap of, of where we have been so far in the book of Romans, because today's text, you have to understand that it's part of a much larger letter, a 16-chapter letter that Paul has written, which is the book of Romans. And so today's text is part of what, has Paul, what Paul has written before, but it's also moving us towards what Paul is going to say next. So let me give you a bit of a Netflix recap. I know if you watch any Netflix series, you know there's the recap at the beginning to help you get up to speed of where you're at. Uh, Paul has just finished introducing the theme of his letter in the introduction, which is those first 17 verses of Romans. And that theme in his letter is the gospel. The gospel. It is the good news announcement that Jesus the Messiah has risen from the dead. Through the cross, he has completed the story of Israel. He has defeated sin and death and the forces of evil. And this was demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead. This gospel, Paul said, this good news is God's power for salvation for everyone, everyone who believes. Which means that when we put our faith in Jesus, he invites us into his family, and then he begins his work of fixing us. And it also means that one day Jesus will fix all of creation. He will solve all of the world's biggest problems. And this is good news. And this is one of the major themes of Paul's letter. Now, Paul also says in the first part, in the introduction, that this gospel would ultimately reveal God's righteousness. In other words, the gospel kind of pulls back the curtain to show us that God is a good God who judges rightly and justly, and that God is a God who keeps his promises, and because of that, this God can be trusted. So that's the recap of the first 17 verses of this chapter. 
But now in verse 18, it's almost like, okay, we're talking about good news, and then we get into verse 18, and it's like Paul suddenly does, does like a 90-degree turn, right? He takes a hard right, he goes away from good news, and suddenly he starts talking about the wrath of God. I mean, it's like going from fresh pavement, and suddenly you're off-roading. It happens so quickly that it, it leaves our heads spinning and our necks hurting. It, it's the, kind of like a plot twist in a Quentin Tarantino movie. But Paul actually hasn't changed the subject. In fact, what he's doing is here is he's starting to pull back the curtain a little bit more to show us God's own righteousness. And he's leading us down this path towards the solution, which is the gospel. But to get to the solution, you must first address the problem. So today, Paul is going to talk about this problem. And he's going to answer the question, why do we need the gospel? Now, remember, uh, in this letter that Paul's writing to the church in Rome, there are two major people groups that he is addressing. There are the Jewish believers, and then there are the non-Jewish believers, which are the Gentiles. And, and one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome is because there is tension between these two different people groups. So what he's going to do from here all the way to chapter 3 is he's going he's to actually level the playing field for both of these groups. He's going to show them that both of them need the gospel. It doesn't matter where you're, whether you're God's covenant people. It doesn't matter whether you're a Gentile. What matters is, is that you all have the same problem, and you all need the same solution. But in this section that we looked at today, and we're looking at today, uh, Paul first starts with the Gentiles. So in other words, he's addressing the whole world. He's addressing all people. He's addressing me, and he's addressing you, and he's answering the question why we need the gospel. Now, I'm sure that you've noticed in the text that this Paul's explanation kind of occurs in steps. So there's kind of a progression that's happening in his explanation. He talks about how the problem began, first of all, but then he talks about how it kind of went downhill from there. So I want to walk through these steps together. That's how we're going to walk through the passage this morning. And, and when we get to the bottom, I think we'll be better understand why it is that we all need the gospel. So it begins with the first step, which is revelation. So Paul says that every person has an innate awareness of their creator. He says that what can be known about God is plain to everyone. So that God reveals himself to us ultimately through creation, and he also reveals us, himself to us through our consciences. Theologians actually have a technical term for this. The term is called natural revelation. And Paul says that this natural revelation of God, it's, it's not ambiguous. In other words, it is clearly seen by everyone. It's clearly seen that there is a God who created everything. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. And we human beings were made to know, to love, and to serve this creator. And this creator created a world, and he designed it and ordered it in such a way that it reflects his divine goodness. So his very righteousness is woven into the very natural order, into the very creation in which we live. I mean, we see this echoed in, in Psalm 19, which Paul would have known very, very well. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So, so what Paul's saying is, you know, God is speaking all the time. 
through, through majestic mountains and, and, and through fragrant pines, through sunsets and sunrises, through cloudbursts and, and waters crashing upon a shore, the star-speckled sky on a starlit night. He is there, and he is not silent. Revelation. But even though humanity has known all of this, Paul says they have suppressed this truth. So they've denied it, or they've ignored it, or, or they, they, they turned the volume way down on God. So even though it's obvious to them <clears throat> that this is true, they have chosen not to believe it. They suppress the truth. And Paul says this is, this is really the starting point where everything starts to go wrong. The fundamental problem with humanity, Paul argues, is human rebellion. And, and really, you, you cannot read Romans 1 without turning also to read Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> because, because you can actually see echoes of Adam and Eve from Genesis chapter 3 here in today's text. Adam and Eve both had selective listening. They, they turned the volume way up on the serpent, and they turned the volume way down on God. And God told them very clearly, hey, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because, because the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. But what did the serpent say? Well, the serpent said, well, did God really say that? I mean, would you really die as God said? Maybe, just maybe, God is holding out on you. And if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not surely die, but your eyes will be open and you will become like God. So he was, he was essentially calling God's own righteousness into question. And so what happened? Well, Adam and Eve, they both suppressed the truth of God. They rebelled against God. They turned the volume way down. They suppressed it. They made the decision. And the curse of sin and death followed into creation. And so what Paul is saying here is, is that humanity continues to do this and has continued to do this. Although the truth of God is plain to everyone, as God has made it plain, we continue to suppress it. And that leads us to the next step. The next step is substitution, or what I would call a failure of worship. Um, so instead of worshiping the Creator, Paul says they chose instead to worship the creation. Paul says they failed to honor God. They failed to give thanks to God. This is a failure of worship. So it's not that they just stopped worshiping God. I mean, actually, as a matter of fact, for human beings, that's almost impossible for us to do because we were designed to worship. We were created with this God-shaped vacuum that needs to be filled. We are, we are religious animals by nature. I love how G.K. Chesterton puts it. He says, for when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. We were made to worship, but Paul says that instead of worshiping God, we instead turn towards idols. Paul calls them images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And in Paul's day, listen, this was not difficult to imagine. Paul was in the Roman Empire. It was a world shaped by idols. Idols were everywhere you go. If you went into somebody's house, there was an idol uh, shrine there. If you went into a place of business, you would find them. You'd find them out on the streets. You'd find them in the temples. The world was full of them. It's easy for us, I think, as modern Western folk to kind of laugh at the ancients in their, you know, unsophisticated religion. I mean, think about it. I mean, who, who worships tiny pieces of stone and, and metal and wood? I mean, who, who, who bows down to monopoly pieces? And yet, we still worship idols today. And if you've been around Crosspoint, you know that we've talked about this a lot. We still have our idols. Our, God, our idols are just a little less tactile, but just as potent. 
In a modern day, we worship gods like sex and money and power and careers and and possessions and, and family. Anything we can elevate higher than God can be an idol. And so in this way, we're not really that much different than the ancients. Well, Paul describes this failure of worship using one word. He calls it an exchange. And and you'll notice that that word exchange actually shows up three times in the text. But in verse 23, he says that humanity has traded, has exchanged the glory of God for images and idols. And the point that Paul is making is that this is actually a really, really bad trade. We haven't traded up on God. Instead, that we have traded, we have traded down. We, we have traded way, way down. So I want you to imagine, it's, it's like someone who swapped a $10 million mansion for a cot in a homeless shelter. That's not a really good trade, right? Or imagine that the Lakers decided they're going to trade LeBron James away for Cindy, who's in grade six. I mean, she's cute. She's just kind of learning how to dribble, but they think that she has a whole lot of great potential. Is that a really great trade? And Paul is saying, listen, we have traded down. We have traded way down. We have traded the immortal God for a bunch of animal crackers. And while we are eating them, they are devouring us. And so how does God respond to this exchange? How does God respond to this trading down? Well, it says in the text that he responds with wrath. This is the major theme of this text, in fact. So it's not, though, however, wrath as most people commonly think about wrath. I think when we think about wrath, we often think of anger and punishment, and we think about the great judgment day and fire and brimstone. You know, that's what we think of when we think about wrath. But that's God's future wrath. And, and Paul's actually going to talk about that in chapter 2. But here Paul's not talking about God's future wrath. He is actually talking about God's present day wrath. This wrath, he says in verse 18, is presently, he's writing in the present tense, this wrath is being revealed now against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So then what does Paul mean by that? What does Paul mean then by God's wrath? Well, let me point out a phrase that gets repeated several times in the text. You'll notice that in verse 24, 26, and 28, it says this about God. It says that God gave them up. What this means is that when people choose to substitute God for idols, when they make this decision, hey, you know what, I'm going to trade down, then God ultimately gives them what they want. He allows them to create this reality of their own making. He lets them succumb to the natural consequences of their choices. He turns them over to their distorted loves and their disjointed desires. And, and, and Paul is, you know, he's, he's saying, he's, I mean, he's trying to demonstrate God's righteousness here. He's saying that this is God's just punishment for man's rebellion. God doesn't force it. He gives humanity the freedom to choose him or to not choose him. But if that's what they want, that is what they'll get. So God essentially says, okay, you want that? I'm going to open the door. He opens the door, and we walk through it. So the result of God's wrath, then, is what we might call dislocation. I don't know about you. If any of you have ever dislocated a shoulder or dislocated a finger, you know it hurts like crazy. But that's only part of the problem. The other problem is that that finger or that shoulder doesn't work right anymore. There's something wrong with it. It's not fitting the way it was intended to. 
as humanity separates from God, they then become dislocated from God's natural order in creation. And Paul gives a couple of examples of how this works. He also, he also makes a clear connection between these examples and a failure of worship. I mean, that's why you see the repetition, again, of this word exchange in verses 25 and 26. It means that as humanity continues to direct their desires away from God, they are continuing to trade down. So, so God gives them over then. He gives them over to these dislocated desires. And this is essentially just an extension of this failure to worship. And let me say this this morning. This is super important for us as followers of Jesus to understand. Because it shows us that sin and unrighteousness at its root isn't about just keeping a set of arbitrary rules. Which I think most of the world, when they think of Christians and followers of Jesus, that's often what they think. Because they, oh, they just keep all of these rules. It's all about following rules. <clears throat> that's not it. The root of sin is the rejection of a person, of a divine person. And God's good commands that he gives to us are a reflection of his character. And again, they are woven into the fabric of his natural created order. So unrighteousness is essentially a worship problem. It's not a commandment-breaking problem. Well, you'll notice that it finally says that God gives them gives humanity over to a debased mind. And this is kind of the last stage of dislocation, if I could explain it that way. Uh, that word debased in, in the original language, it basically means substandard or unfit. I want you to think about this. Have you ever gone to a grocery store and uh, you get that one shopping cart with the bad wheel? You know what I'm talking about? You know what that experience is like, right? You remember how hard it is to keep that shopping cart kind of going in the right direction? I mean, the wheel wobbles and the wheel sticks, right? And, and you often find yourself, the, the shopping cart's going in a direction and you're constantly course correcting this thing. You're looking around because you're all embarrassed, right? But it's not your fault. It's the, it's the cart's fault. You may run into people or you're hitting, hitting boxes along the aisles. We have to work super hard with a broken wheel if we wanted to get it to go where it goes. And this is what Paul is essentially getting at when he talks about the debased mind. See, the thing about the mind in Scripture is, is it's always connected to the conscience. And when the mind goes, which is supposed to be like a, a filter and a guide with the conscience, when the mind goes, it's game on for misdirection. It's, it's like trying to use a compass in a room full of magnets. You don't know which way ultimately you're supposed to go. And so when the mind goes, where ultimately does it lead? Well, it leads ultimately to all sorts of bad behavior, which brings us to the next step, which is participation. And Paul says what happens then is full-on participation into really stupid and really hurtful things. Paul describes this as being filled, filled with unrighteousness and with evil. And, you know, it's interesting is Paul gives a whole list of examples. And, and when you look at the list of examples, it, it almost seems like he's it's like kind of arbitrary. Like it, they don't really all fit together. There doesn't seem to be any order to them all. I mean, he lists everything from murder to bragging to gossip. Uh, he also lists disobedience to parents, right? Hmm? Yeah, I can almost hear all the parents at home amening each other, high-fiving, right? Yeah, you, your frustration is sometimes justified. Yes, maybe your kids' minds are something like a squeaky wheel on a shopping cart? I don't know, okay? But Paul gives a whole gamut of examples here of participation uh, that's as a result of this debased mind. But I want to point out one thing that most of these examples have in common. Almost all of these examples are relational problems. 
There's a few that talk about our relationship with God, but most of them talk about our relationship with each other, which tells us one thing. We are all in the same boat, and that boat is sinking. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make here. Because I can guarantee that you and I can walk through that list and we can check off a number of boxes that have our name beside it. Well, then there's the final step. And, and this is kind of the bottom step of it all. It's celebration. Paul says that they not only, not only do these things, but they give approval to people who practice them. You know, it's bad enough to do the wrong thing, but it's quite another to approve of the wrong thing for yourself or for others. For example, consider two murderers. They commit the same crime, same kind of scenario, similar kind of motive. The first murderer owns up to the problem, and he actually feels remorseful about what he did, and he'd wish that he could change it. The second murderer thinks that he was doing the world a favor because this guy was a loser, and he does not deserve to be sentenced because he was being so helpful. Let me ask you a question. As far as murderers go, which of these was the better murderer? It is one thing to do a thing. It is quite another to celebrate a thing after it's been done. And the most troubling thing about our world is that we live in a place where the wrong thing is being approved of more and more every day. We don't slander, we will say. We're just exercising our freedom of speech. We aren't boastful. We're just building our brand and our platform. We're not disobedient to our parents. We're expressing our individuality and identity. We're not lying. We're providing our own version of the truth. We're not covetous. We're just putting together our Amazon wish list. Paul would say there's something deeply wrong with the world that we live in. And this is not the world as God intended it to be. And this is why we need the gospel. <clears throat> now, I want to take a moment and I want to address an obvious elephant that has been in the room all morning, probably since the moment Kincaid started reading the text. And I am referring specifically to what Paul is writing in verses 26 and 27 about same-sex relations. But before I talk about this, I want to make a few very important opening remarks. First of all, can I just say that there really is no non-controversial way to talk about what Paul says in these verses. I mean, if I just skipped over it, there would be people who would be really disappointed. If I address it, somebody's going to be disappointed no matter what I say. So I hope that you can appreciate the difficulty in navigating uh, this very potential minefield. Second, I also want to say that to really do justice to this topic in a way that is careful and that is compassionate takes time. This is not a simple topic. This is a very nuanced topic. And it really deserves more than a few minutes. I understand that and I get that. 
today I'm only going to explain what Paul says in this text. So that being said, this is not a complete package. This does not answer all of the questions about this topic. But I will say this, if you are looking for answers about this topic for you or for somebody else, I have put a lot of content in the notes today, the crosspointchurch.ca slash notes, books and podcasts that you can look at that will be helpful to you. And of course, if you have questions, I'm, I'm always available to listen and to dialogue and to hear what you have to say. Finally, I think it's really, really important to remember that this topic includes real people with real experiences. It is more than just an issue that we need to solve. And I think many people can lose sight of this, particularly Christians, in light of the current debate and our current culture wars. I want to let you know that I have people in my life who are walking through or wrestling through this issue of same-sex attraction or orientation. And these people in my life matter a great deal to me. So this isn't just about issues. This is about people. And here's the thing. Jesus calls us to love all people, to relate to all people with compassion and with humility, with a posture of welcome, a posture that is quick to listen, to practice hospitality, to pray, to be in community and friendship. And this includes all people in the world. And that includes those who are same-sex attracted or oriented or whatever language that you use. So with that caveat or those three caveats, let me just explain what Paul is saying here. As I said before, Paul is describing how human life has essentially dislocated itself away from God and his natural order. And so since because we've traded down on God, we continue this exchange by directing our desires away from God and his natural order. <clears throat> Paul is addressing a topic that he would have been actually quite familiar with. Uh, Same-sex relations were practiced in various forms in the ancient world, in temples, in armies, in teacher-student relationships. Even the emperor Nero in the city of Rome, who Paul is writing to, had partners, same-sex partners, you could find it in the literature of the Greeks, and you could also find it extensively in the literature of the Jews. So parts of the Roman culture in which Paul lived in fully embraced it. Parts of the Roman culture that Paul lived in actually denied it and were rejected it. Paul was not some Jew from Jerusalem who didn't know much about anything. He was a bit of a yokel, local yokel and was kind of a, you know, living on the, in the sticks. Paul was actually a cosmopolitan Jew. He understood Greek language. He grew up in the city of Tarsus, which is a very cosmopolitan type of community. All that to say is that Paul was very familiar with the subject material when he wrote. And it's very likely that the church he wrote to was also very familiar with the subject material. Paul's point here was simply this, was that same-sex relations are not what males and females were made for. His larger, but this is only actually a small point among his very much larger point, which is our dislocation from God's natural order. So he was just using this as an example to explain his much bigger uh, argument. 
And in this text, Paul is actually just using it as a pointer to point us back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where it explains this kind of the structure of God's natural order, a world where men and women were created in the image of God as two very different sexes who come together to be fruitful and multiply and to complement each other as they join God in stewarding his created order. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, that being said, I think it's also really important to point out what Paul is not saying here, especially for followers of Jesus in this day who can get caught up and confused by the culture wars. First of all, Paul is not saying that same-sex attraction or orientation, however you call it, is the violation. Paul is not condemning people for having same-sex attraction. Rather, Paul is talking about acting out on these passions. The problem was with behavior or with participation. And as a matter of fact, it's the same problem if you back up the bus and you look at verses 24 and 25. Paul is saying this is actually the very same problem for straight people who are engaging in heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. They too have kind of given into their desires and they've acted out on them. So the issue here is action. It's not about orientation. Second, Paul is not saying that same-sex behavior is the worst kind of sin. Paul's argument wasn't intended to imply that this is like the worst form of depravity. He's not saying it's the worst sin. He's simply saying that it's an obvious sin because it's dislocated from God's natural order. And he could just very quickly point out in Genesis 1 and 2, you see, this is, there's a real difference here, okay? So, so, and, and he would also say the same about sex outside of marriage for straight people having heterosexual sex. In our current cultural climate, it, it is really easy for us to elevate some sins while ignoring our own. Remember the fingers? One pointing out, three pointing back. But Paul the Apostle will not let us get away with that. That's why he ends with this whole list of sins resulting from a depraved mind. <clears throat> this is, in fact, the step down. His point is that, that sin runs down the middle of each and every one of us, no matter who we are. And this is why we need the gospel. This is why God sent his son on a rescue mission into the world to save the world and ultimately to fix everything. Now, Paul's not saying that, that uh, everything we do is evil. That's not his argument because um, he's, just, he's just saying that there's something deeply wrong in the world and there's something deeply wrong in each and every one of us. And he's pointing out these very specific and clear examples of how that's true. You know, years ago, I, I had a Mayday tree in my backyard and, and it was a beautiful tree, uh, especially in the springtime. Because in the springtime, it would just kind of burst to life, just almost overnight, with these tiny little white flowers. And they would cover the entire tree. And it was like this, this cascade of, of snowy mountains in my backyard for about a week. Well, in the autumn of the first year, I went out to my Mayday tree, and I looked up in the branches, and I noticed that there was something really wrong with the branches up near the tips. It, it, was, it almost looked like they were diseased. It looked like there was like coal wrapped around several of the branches. Well, I did a little bit of research, and I, and I realized that my tree was, in fact, diseased. It had something that was called black knot. And uh, black knot, if you let it continue to get worse and grow, can ultimately kill your tree. 
So I figured, you know, is there a way to solve this? And they said, yeah, there's a way to solve this. All you have to do is start pruning your tree. Cut back several centimeters from where the black rod is, and eventually you'll be able to rescue your tree. And so that's what I did. Every year, I was in a battle with this black rod, trimming it back, pruning it back. Um, but what I discovered is that year after year, even though I pruned away the black, rod, black knot, it continued to come back. It just kept reappearing. I was losing the battle. And every single year, my beautiful cascade, my beautiful mountainside of white snow in my yard got smaller and patchier and worse and worse until finally one year I said, I don't know if I'm going to win this battle. So I called an, an arborer and I said, hey, can you come look at my tree? And he came and looked at my tree and he went all the way through it and he said, yeah, there's no way to rescue this tree because the black rot has actually found its way down to the trunk and it's actually in the very root of your tree. You have no other solution but to cut down the tree. And the very thought of that was like a sad thought for us. I mean, because this, this tree had special meaning in my family. I mean, my, my kids carved their names into the tree. I swung my hammock under that tree. I sat under the tree at night with friends as, as we sat around the fire together. I did not want to cut that tree. But eventually I knew that I had no other choice because the black knot had found its way all the way to the core of the tree. And so we cut it down. Friends, the, there is something deeply wrong in all of us, and it goes all the way to the core. And sure, we, we still continue to produce our own version of branches and leaves and flowers, um, even though if they're coming in patches. But the problem that we have and the problem that we face cannot be solved with pruning. The solution begins at the core. It begins at the source of the black rot. And Paul would say that this is why we need the gospel. Because our sin has so dislocated us from God and it's dislocated us from each other that we need the power of his salvation to come in and to fix us from the inside out. Well, how do we do that? How does this, this fixing process begin? Well, I think it means going back to the beginning and changing the exchange. In other words, to turning away from trading down instead to decide to trade up. It means being willing to cast down our idols and the things in our lives that are ultimately killing us and turning ourselves towards God, which has been made possible through Jesus Christ. It has been made possible through his great exchange. You know, I, I, I think about this, this famous Canadian, maybe you've heard about him, his name is Kyle McDonald. You ever heard about Kyle McDonald? Kyle McDonald didn't have a job. He didn't have money. His girlfriend was essentially floating his rent. But his greatest desire in his life was to simply own a house. And of course, his assets were minimal. He didn't have anything. But he did have one thing. He had a red paper clip. So Kyle McDonald decided that he was going to offer the red paper clip on Craigslist in exchange for anything else someone would be willing to give him. Interestingly enough, a girl in Vancouver responded to his ad and she said, you know what, I will exchange you a fish pen for this paperclip. So next he put the, paper, the, the fish pen up on Craigslist and he says, would somebody exchange something for this fish pen? Well, somebody exchanged a doorknob. But then the doorknob was exchanged for a camping stove. And then the camping stone was, stove was exchanged for a generator. And the generator then for a neon sign. And he kept trading. And he kept on making exchanges. 14 exchanges in all. Until finally he traded up on a small acting job. And then he took that acting job and he exchanged it for a small house in Kipling, Saskatchewan. 
a red paper clip for a house. Now that, that is a great exchange. But it still pales in comparison to the greatest exchange that was ever made. The greatest exchange that was ever made in human history was the God of the universe did not leave us in a world of brokenness, but he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world, and Jesus came, and he exchanged his life for our lives. And he invites each and every one of us to do the same. He says, I have made the way for you to come to God. I have made the way for you to experience the power of salvation so that your broken life can be fixed, so that your broken relationships can be healed. And all I'm asking you to do is to participate in another exchange, to trade up, to let go of the idols that are killing you, to step away from the things that are destroying your life and turn towards me. Cast down your idols, trade up, and take on me. And that through faith in me, I will begin the process of transforming your life through the power of salvation. That, my friends, is a great exchange. We need the gospel, and Jesus offers it to us freely. Well, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to spend a couple of moments in silent reflection today. And uh, as you know, we, we don't often have time in our lives to be able to pray and to be able to uh, talk to God. So I just want to give you the chance to do that for a couple of minutes this morning. I want you to consider these two questions. The first question is just simply this, is as you were listening to the message this morning, what did you sense God saying to you? And the second question is like it. What is it that you think God is asking you to do? Do you know that God honors your act of faith and your act of obedience? That as you step towards God and what he's asking you to do, he will honor it. He'll give you the power to do it. He'll give you the ability to see it through. So what, what is it that you need to do this morning? Let's take a couple of minutes in silent reflection, wherever you are in your house or um, maybe you're in your living room or in your kitchen. Just take a couple minutes and let's talk to our God who is very present. thank you that you you have loved us so much that you're not willing to leave us to continue to give us over instead you gave yourself over that we might find our way back to you and that is grace undeserved unmerited and something only you can give and we thank you for that thank you for your great love for us we bless your name help us today Lord to live in love Help us to walk in faithfulness. Help us to overcome. 
We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.